Hi, I'm David Green, and you're listening to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I want to start with some thought-provoking questions that will hopefully set the stage for this week's episode. What if the traditional boundaries of the workforce no longer apply? What if the key to unlocking strategic success lies not within the confines of your organisation, but in the interconnected web of talent, technology and partnerships that make up your workforce ecosystem? These questions challenge us to rethink how we approach people management and workforce dynamics. And that's precisely what we'll be exploring today with our incredible guests, Elizabeth Altman and Robin Jones, two of the four authors of the groundbreaking book, Workforce Ecosystems, Reaching Strategic Goals with People, Partners and Technologies. Elizabeth and Robin bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table. Elizabeth is an Associate Professor of Management at the University of Massachusetts, Laos, and guest editor of the MIT Sloan Management Review Future of the Workforce Project. And Robin is a leader of Deloitte's Workforce Transformation Practice. Together, they have joined forces with their two other co-authors, David Kiron and Jeff Schwartz, to develop a fascinating and highly educational book that dives deep into the concept of workforce ecosystems and how they can shape the future of organisations. And today, we're going to uncover some of those secrets and discuss the practical implications for HR leaders. So whether you're an HR professional, a business leader, or simply someone interested in the evolving landscape of work, this episode is for you. So let's get started by getting in an introduction into the expertise and backgrounds of Elizabeth and Robin. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Elizabeth Altman and Robin Jones, two of the four co-authors of an important new book on workforce ecosystems to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Liz, Robin, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you both on the show. Um, Before we get started, could you both please share a little bit about yourselves, what you do, and, and maybe how you know each other? And Liz, I'll start with you. Great. Thank you very much. And it is a pleasure to be here. So thanks again for inviting us. As you said, I'm Liz Altman. I'm a professor at the University of Massachusetts Lowell in the Manning School of Business. I teach mostly strategy and also some organizational behavior. And in terms of how Robin and I know each other, it's a bit of a funny story. And maybe we'll get to it a little bit later. But I became guest editor at MIT Sloan Management Review for the Future of the Workforce. And that's a project that is sponsored by Deloitte, and we work in collaboration with Deloitte. And while Robin and I started working together, I believe in maybe March of 2020, it was only a few weeks ago that we finally met in person uh, <laughs> in Dallas at Deloitte University. So we wrote an entire book together, and I think maybe close to 10 different types of publications, all with the magic of Zoom, and now have actually broken bread together, as we say. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. And that's a, that's a great story. I wonder how many stories there are like that because of what happened in March 2020. R- Robin, over to you. Thanks, David. And just to add to Liz's story, we also uh, got puppies together from the same breeder. So we bonded well before we broke bread together. <laughs> but thank you for having both of us, David. And I lead workforce transformation in the U.S. for Deloitte Consulting. And I've been in that role for four years. It was a business that we launched just five years ago. 
and has been an incredible first chair seat to our clients who are experimenting and facing and juggling a really dynamic transforming workforce across their organization. So it was through that research that Liz described that through MIT SMR where we all came together along with David Kieran and Jeff Schwartz to produce research focused on the future of the workforce. And uh, we'll get into it more in this uh, podcast, but lots of interesting questions that we've been exploring together. Well, it's great to have you both on the show. And I know Robin had a couple of your colleagues on earlier in the year, Michael Griffith and, and Sue Cantrell, talking about some of the work that I know you've been involved in around the skills-based organisation, which I guess we may touch on a little bit in our conversation. But it was one of your former colleagues that actually kind of prompted us to reach out to you to, to get you onto the show. Jeff Schwartz, who's also one of your, your co-authors on, on the book, and I know a former colleague at Deloitte, Robin. So your new book, which kindly arrived in the post on Friday, and yes, you can already see has got post-it notes all over it from me. So um, I haven't read all of it yet, but I have read some of it. It's very, very good. So the book, Workforce Ecosystems, Reaching Strategic Goals with People, Partners and Technologies. And, and when Jeff was on the podcast, we were talking about the past, present and future of talent marketplaces. And, and during the conversation, he referenced the topic of workforce ecosystems and, and the book the three of you wrote and was published a few weeks ago with, with David Kieran as well. So, so I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Robin, could you share a synopsis of the book and, and maybe what motivated you all to, to write about workforce ecosystems? Sure. Happy to. So as I mentioned, you know, five years, we as a firm have been focused really on the workforce itself and all the nuances and all the shifts that have been happening. And so this goes well beyond the COVID pandemic and kind of built upon the Human Capital Trends Report Series that we've created over uh, more than a dozen years. As you mentioned, Michael Griffiths has been a key contributor to that in the last couple of years, as well as Sue Cantrell. And so this has been a really collective focus on studying the trends that we saw unfolding in the workplace, uh, where employees wanted more agency in what they did. They wanted more flexibility, again, well beyond the, the pandemic. They wanted their, the organizations that they worked for to have stand for something, to, you know, social injustice took took a new life and they wanted to be part of firms that had purpose and represented, you know, strong, positive social capital. They wanted differentiated careers that really matched not just their own personal goals, but that in their families as well. And of course, more and more people are in the workplace, dual income families and the like. And so we were watching this, you know, need and desire from the workforce to want something really significantly different than what the organizations were offering to the workers. I often say there was a mindset well before of you get what you get and you don't get upset from the leadership and the organizations. And they were, HR was really focused on just making sure there was risk administration, you know, compliance, harmony, but also just kind of, you know, not too far to where the employees really wanted more. So that was really the, the impetus that we started. Of course, you fast forward to the pandemic and we saw this come to life in a very quick way and a very real way pervasively. While we were doing this research together, we started to ask the question of our researchees, our interviewees, to say, well, who is your workforce? 
And that was where the light bulb went off. It was the starting question of, well, that's an interesting question. Well, it's actually quite evolved. Well, it's so much more than the permanent employees. It has external. We now have technology playing the role of people. We're playing technology with people. So it just became this very open space for us to explore the research. And we'll get into more of that, but that question of who is your workforce is the thread that we pulled in this research and in the book itself. And it was quite eye-opening, and eye-opening in the sense that many of the people we interviewed were either starting to think about it for the first time and didn't have a handle on who their workforce was, or their leaders were asking the exact same question and recognizing it's much more expansive than it once was. So we'll get into that more. That led to the book itself, and we did contemplate the structure, but it really falls into three parts. First, it's introducing a workforce ecosystem. We literally coined the term, and we're starting to see that term take off and take hold in our clients and in an organization. So that was pretty exciting, and we defined that in the book. The second part is about orchestrating workforce ecosystems. And we intentionally chose the word orchestrating as opposed to managing because you really don't have this direct report, the controls that you have, the incentives aren't exactly aligned with an external workforce as as it is an internal workforce. And all of the tangible and intangibles kind of need to be rewritten for the different types and categories of workers. So it was less of a managing, controlling, and more of an orchestrating type uh, play that we, and dynamic that we were seeing. And then that's really about you know, the integration architectures. We have technology, you know, how you access them, aligning the interests and the like. And then the third part is about developing socially responsible workforce ecosystems. This third part of the book is our forward-looking view. It's our what if, you know, now that this is taking off, what can you do with an ecosystem and what can you leverage in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion in creating more diverse workforce compositions? How do you bring and make sure you're doubling down on ethics across the workforce? And just some perspectives on what we think the future might hold. Great. I love the three sections that, that it's built into. And I'm going to ask a follow-up question now. Might be you, Robin, might be Liz. And going to read just one line from Donna Morris, who obviously just for listeners is the chief people officer at Walmart. Just to your point, Robin, about that question, what is the workforce? And and there's a great quote um, here from Donna in the book. You know, I believe the workforce is the composition of all the people who contribute to the strategy or the business objectives of an organisation, which is, I think, is a really nice, succinct way of putting it. But before we get into a bit more around the concept and how that, you know, it, I get it, and I'm sure listeners will. That it's, it's clearly something that, that is a is a is a concept that's becoming more and more important. How, how would you define a workforce ecosystem, and, and what is it actually composed of? Yeah, so we have a few definitions in the book, but I'm just going to simplify it. Is it's really the total workforce? If you step back, internal, external, technology, different contract models. Think about anyone who's doing work on behalf of the organization to add value to the organization and for the organization itself to advance the mission, to advance the strategy, to advance the business as a whole. And it's really that simple. It's it's looking beyond your typical 
in, you know, just internal permanent employees, but also looking beyond just your, your freelancers and your gig workers. It's your consultants, right? It's your ecosystem partners who have workforces coming together with your workforces on project teams or initiatives. So it is truly the most expansive group of workers and technology coming together to create value and do work itself on behalf of the organization. Yeah, that's really interesting because obviously some companies outsource certain parts of their work. So that's that's clearly part of the workforce ecosystem. And obviously we're hearing we can't you can't pick up a newspaper if, if people still read a newspaper or a digital newspaper about reading something about technology and how that's going to transform the workplace. And clearly that's going to be an even more growing element of, of the ecosystem as well. Leeds, before, before I move on, is there anything you'd like to, to, to add to, to that at all? No, I think it's it, Robin did a great job of both summarizing the concept and the book, you know, we talk about as a total workforce, we talk about also as an extended workforce. Uh, you hear people use that term. So we use that term as well. And I think, you know, we took this much broader perspective and really opened the lens on who and what one considers a workforce and how those various actors contribute to creating value, both for the organization and also for themselves. And I guess maybe that's one piece I'll add is, as if you look in the book and our articles in our more formal definition, we are very clear that the definition includes both individual and collective goals. So it's very important to us that we take not only the perspective of the organization at the center of the ecosystem, but also all the participants, because if those participants aren't also hitting their goals, then it won't be a long-term sustainable workforce ecosystem. So I guess that's one other point. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And I think might link it to the, the next couple of questions, I think, Liz. Um, so, so same with you, Liz, you know, how does the concept of the of the workforce ecosystem relate to the to wider business strategy? And why is it not just an HR discussion? Sure. Yeah, so I'm a strategy professor, and have been teaching strategy for a little while. And so this is one of my favorite questions, I will say. But when we first started thinking about we think about strategy, and often strategists, I also used to be a strategist in a large corporation, think about competition, think about capabilities, think about trade-offs, long-term decision-making, and come up with strategic goals and objectives, strategic plans, and then think about, okay, well, given these strategic goals and objectives, now who do we need to accomplish that? And generally, the traditional path has been to think about, so who do we need to hire, right? How many FTEs do we need? And what we're seeing now is two things happening. One, people being much more open to who do we need in what ways? What are the appropriate types of relationships we need to have, both with people and technologies, right? But the other piece that I think was very surprising to us was the extent to which we think people are now as we say, flipping the switch in terms of how they're thinking about this, right? Or I think we said, you know, flipping the script. And so thinking more in terms of what are the capabilities available to us and given those capabilities and given these people who, and technologies, but these people who we can work with and these organizations we can work with, what does that mean for what we can offer in terms of products and services? And one of our favorite examples, which I think made it into the book, was we were talking to executives 
at a large creative agency. And they were saying that uh, we realized that some of our interns and our contractors had incredible TikTok skills, but nobody who really in our kind of core workforce was focusing on building their TikTok skills. And so, but once we realized this, it actually did help us think differently about how we were serving our clients and who we could leverage to serve them well. And so, though it may seem like a slightly silly example, and kind of, of course, a younger generation will have those types of skills, I think it is a different mindset around strategic planning when you're thinking from the ecosystem and from the ecosystem perspective, then back into the organization. And so that was a uh, That was a great learning for us and I think is pretty exciting as we look at other organizations. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Worklytics, generating actionable insights from work data while protecting employee privacy using Worklytics data stream. Worklytics combines passive listening with organizational network analysis to help you understand how work is getting done so you can identify bottlenecks improve collaboration, and increase employee engagement. Curious to see how it works? Worklytics is offering a free meeting effectiveness analysis to the first 10 qualified companies who express interest. Tell them I sent you by going to worklytics.co forward slash digital HR leaders. That's W-O-R-K-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot co forward slash digital HR leaders. What do HR leaders or, or people analytics leaders who are increasingly responsible for, you know, workforce planning at least, looking to shift away from traditional workforce management to, to orchestrating a workforce ecosystem need to start doing, you know, what, what needs to change? Yeah, so... I'm going to build on Liz's uh, TikTok story and give you three more examples to just give you a sense of who we interviewed, many of whom are very cutting edge, out in front CHROs, and how they were thinking about this as we got into the most expansive discussion about their workforce. The first one was Susan Toyama of Ceridian. And Again, the skills question came right to mind for her in that she said, you know, early in the pandemic, they had to literally scramble to figure out as they had to shift their business quickly, move into and out of new services and capabilities. They had to scramble to figure out who has the skills we need to pivot in the way that we have to pivot as quickly as we can. And that was an eye-opening for them. They wanted to look not just at their internal, they wanted to look at their external, the people who had been doing work for them and could make the pivot and wanted to engage in that way. So they went right to a talent marketplace. And that's been the focus of theirs, you know, needing skills, needing to identify them and didn't have the infrastructure set up to do that. That was the, the you know, the trigger for, for Ceridian. Novartis is another example. Novartis, very innovative, cutting-edge organization. And their question is, if we were to step back and say, for all of our managers who need to source people or resources and technology to do work, how do we make it easier for them to make decisions around whether they buy, build, or borrow, 
And where do they access the people to do the work? HR's always been in that very, very difficult position of someone else sets the strategy, that then defines people and skill and job requirements, and then they have to scramble to go hire or find them as quickly as possible. And so this was an organization, Novartis and many others we interviewed, where they're saying, we don't want to be in that reactive mode. We want to be much more proactive and meeting the needs of our business, our stakeholders, when they need it as they're contemplating it, as Liz said, at the strategy stage. So they went into that mode of, if you simulate for a manager, you know, use the persona of the manager, I want to create a new body of work. Let's create this environment to make it super easy for them to find the skills they need, the people they need, the duration they need, and put project teams and the like together. And then the third example, which I think is super interesting, is Unilever. And Unilever is experimenting with different employment contracts. And they're trying to move as far away from just your traditional standard employment contracts to, again, meet some of the trends and shifts that we mentioned earlier that are taking place. People want more flexibility. You know, the dad who's now going to take pull back on their career to help raise the family, but doesn't want to step out completely, maybe wants to pull back to 50 hours a week, or I'm sorry, 50%, 50% of their time, and do something to advance their skills and develop in other ways to prepare for another track of their career, either within the, you know, in this case, Unilever or somewhere else. But that's the kind of creative getting to the heart of what the workers want and rethinking employment contracts and to rethink the total composition of the workforce. I think that's really the opportunity for HR. That's really good, Robin. And for those listening that are interested in what Robin was just explaining about Unilever, their UWork initiative, we had Placide Jovert, um, who's the chief talent officer now at Unilever on the podcast about a year or just over a year or so ago talking about that. And Jeroen Wells, who I think you interviewed for the book, Robin and Liz, he was talking about that in the episode with, with Jeff Schwartz earlier this year as well. So it's nice nice to link things together on that. No, no, really, really interesting. And, and, and staying with you, Robin, you talked about maybe different ways of approaching it from an HR perspective, workforce management perspective. In the book, you also mentioned that in order to effectively orchestrate, and I'm going to use that word because I like that word as well, a, a workforce ecosystem, there needs to be a shift in leadership behaviours and, and mindsets. I think it's a great quote that Thomas Chamorro Pumusic actually says. He says that 20% of leadership behaviours need to change, which is quite significant. Please, can you expand on this and, and share with listeners how leaders can adapt their strategies to lead in this evolving ecosystem? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to answer that, and then I'm sure Liz will want to weigh in as well. I mean, first of all, leaders now are managing an environment where they have less and less control. Control of stable markets, because they're not. Control of the organization, because they're evolving so quickly. Control of the workers, because their desires and wants are so different. So we've really, you know, shifted where leaders are in this space where they have to inspire they have to motivate. They have to meet the needs of their people, their teams. All the things I said earlier about, you know, they have to really represent the core values of the organization and reinforce that. They need to stand for something that the organization stands for. They need to support their people when they want something that is non-standard. And so this is, we've really seen the pressure on leadership to, you know, kind of go way above and beyond in many ways, 
uh, in many examples, it's like unbelievable the amount of demands on our leaders to, you know, just like in, in, you know, flying in an aircraft and the flight attendant putting, you know, keeping everyone calm, putting their air masks on and the like. That's, that's the sense of what leaders have had to endure over the last several years for sure. So now we just piled on this notion of, you know, it's not just the teams that you've been assigned on an org chart that you're responsible for. You have to lead across. You have to influence across. You have to, again, orchestrate many moving parts, connecting projects, initiatives, strategies, and teams. So this is definitely an important imperative for leaders to, you know, understand the new context within which they're leading. And unfortunately, and you from in the book and why we've written the book is there's not a lot of rules of the road. There's not a lot of best practices. So there's a lot of experimentation and we're seeing a ton of uh, resources and sharing of, you know, tips, tricks, best practices within leaders in different forums. But we're all in this early days experimentation, trying to learn from each other. Liz, would you add anything? Sure. I mean, I, I agree with everything you've said, not surprisingly, since we've talked about this a lot. But let me add one or two examples. I've spent a lot of time with the U.S. military. So I taught at West Point as a visiting professor, which is the U.S. Military Academy for Army officers. And through those connections and colleagues, I was able to arrange for interviews with two U.S. Army generals. And we learned a lot by speaking with them. One of the reasons we decided to speak with them was we realized this, while this is, of course, important for corporations, we think it's also important for nonprofits, for government organizations, for higher ed, for the military as well, and that we could learn from non-corporate executives, you know, executives in other contexts. So we had these great conversations with two different generals. And in both cases, they explained to us that these days in the military, leaders have to lead ecosystems, right? The, the people who they're leading often don't work for them, right? They're from either different services or different branches, or they may be from local communities or different governments. And so they've had to think a lot about how do you get a group of people to quickly coalesce towards accomplishing a mission? And in many ways, that's what we're seeing now. So Robin mentioned values-based leadership, right? Value-centric leadership. We you know, people talk a lot these days about purpose-driven work and purpose-driven leadership. And I think we're seeing that more and more when, when you need to pull together a group that maybe 50% of the members work for your organization and the other 50% work for other organizations or work for themselves, then you really need to focus much more on how do you get everyone aligned towards a our mission? How do you make sure people share the same values around these particular topics? And so we're seeing it more and more. And I think this question about what's, so we've talked a lot for many years about leadership without authority and, you know, it's much more persuasive and all this, but I think we've kind of hit next level on in an ecosystem environment. What does that mean? What are the skills? You know, what are the best practices what should a leader think about? How do we do? And then how do we do leader de development? We have all these courses. We have all these discussions about leadership development that don't really fully address the notion of leading within an ecosystem context. And so also as an academic, 
as we're thinking about training next generation, as we're thinking about helping to reskill, there's a lot, I'm working on a book chapter right now for a different book with one of my doctoral students, actually, who happens to come to think of it be an army officer. So there's a lot of question about what's appropriate leadership in an ecosystem context. Yeah, it's interesting because we had Heather McGowan on recently, future work strategist, and she was talking, you know, some of the some of the stuff that you're talking about, the ecosystem element, the workforce ecosystem element, definitely came into some of the conversations we have with Heather. And she was talking about, you know, the need for leaders to be to be more empathetic, to be a bit more transparent, maybe than 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 they have been in the past, be a bit more open, you know, around uh, uh, around maybe where they don't know the answers, you know, which is very different from how leaders have been taught historically. And I, and I guess a lot of that comes into what you're saying, you know, cross-functional teams, but not even just cross-functional teams, teams where you've got permanent employees, contractors, people that work for themselves, people that work for consulting firms. You know, it's it's just a different type of world. And as you, as you quite, you know, clearly and, and well articulated, very, very different and far more challenging perhaps than, than or different perhaps than leading in, in, in the you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. One other point I just raised that I'm reminded of in listening to your comments is we talked a lot with people who we interviewed and we've written a, a bunch about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is, of course, you know, DEI practices are a very big topic and very relevant to this whole conversation. And we believe that a workforce ecosystem structure leads to generally better outcomes around DEI. Now, I say that very hesitantly because we don't have formal quantitative empirical data on that yet, but I'm you know, I'm interested in continuing to pursue that and I think it's fair to say, you know, this is a much more open, inclusive, integrative type of a structure and by its nature, it brings more people in and it allows more people to participate in various ways. So it makes sense for us that it should be beneficial from a DEI perspective. We can also see that there are lots of risks associated with it. And if you look at the third chapter of the book, we start to highlight some of what those risks might be and you know where concerns might come into play. So we're not naive in thinking this is going to solve all of these problems, but I think it is it's important to bring in this discussion because when, again, when we circle back to a discussion of leadership, it does also, of course, involve these DEI topics. And I'm guessing as well, and I'll, I'll get to the next question around the contingent workers, because I think there's some, some really specific questions around that. You know, if you're, if you're in a big organisation, you mentioned, obviously, two of, two of the examples, Novartis and Unilever, massive organisations, different businesses within there. You know, there's going to be some parts of the business, maybe where an ecosystem is is even more pre- prevalent than it may be in other parts of the organisation as well, which probably adds yet another layer of complexity to it. So this question, I think, is, is, is particularly interesting. I saw you published recently an article, I think it was in Mitzlow Management Review, about, and it gave the example of Cisco, I think, on this. But how can organisations effectively navigate the challenge of coordinating and integrating their workforce ecosystem when some contingent workers prefer less integration and others desire more involvement, you know, and you might touch on here the different ways that organizations manage their contingent workforce as well. So I think I'll take, the, I'll start this and then Robin can certainly uh, layer on as well. So 
while I'm thinking of it as well. So you mentioned the article we published about using Cisco as an example of contingent workers in SMR. I will tell you that this morning we released a second article, which is an excerpt from the book or an adaptation from the book that will be in the print version of SMR um, the summer issue, and is also online as of this morning, which is essentially a condensed version of chapter six, which is on integration architectures. So topics I'm going to mention are online this morning. So we talk about integration architecture. So let me maybe just step back on that because I think that will address this question. We went around and around about terminology. And basically this comes down to how does an organization coordinate uh, amongst its members of its workforce ecosystem. And there are two elements of this, and we think there probably could have been two chapters about it, but we pulled them together. One is how do you coordinate internally? And this gets into a discussion of kind of jurisdiction, which I can, I'll come back to. And the second is how do you coordinate with your external partners? And so that's the contingent worker discussion. So first, the, the first part of this conversation, I think is worth saying, and I think Robin mentioned it a little bit earlier on, but just to put a fine point on it. When we first started talking with HR leaders, particularly about this topic, and then with strategy leaders and CEOs and others, we realized that traditionally employees are, I say managed, they're managed by their managers, but they're kind of overseen by the HR function, right? As, as you and your listeners well know. However, contingent workers are generally not managed or overseen by HR, right? They often come through procurement or finance or some other function. And so then you get into this question of kind of, first of all, who knows how many people are in the, are working for the organization, which is, turns out to be not that simple a question. And second, how do we take this kind of broader, more integrated approach, right? And one, I think that there's a quote definitely in one of the reports, and I believe in the book about managers saying this is like a hot potato, right? Like, Who's responsible for it? I'm not responsible. You know, HR isn't responsible for it. Business leaders aren't responsible for it. Strategy people aren't responsible for it. Procurement is responsible for it. But we had a great quote by someone who said, procurement really is responsible for procuring pencils and other, you know, obviously much more important items. But somehow they ended up also procuring people, basically, because they ended up managing the supply contracts, right? And so that's not good unless it's, you know, thought of differently. So this question about how an organization internally thinks about all of the different members of the workforce ecosystem, and we are seeing cross-functional approaches. So we use Cisco as an example because they've put in place a whole organization and strategy around managing this, including a cross-functional governance steering committee, which seems to be working very well for them. So that's the internal in integration architecture. And then the external gets to this question of, well, if you include complementers, say, so if you include developers, if you have an app store, so I often use the example of just a smartphone. Today, all of us use smartphones and they're not useful unless they have apps on them, right? And so who makes those apps, right? Not the employees of the company who are making the smartphones. Those apps are being developed by external companies who aren't really partners in the traditional sense because they're not suppliers. You don't have a, a, a strong contractual relationship with them. They're part of an, an app store, 
right? And they're part of a developer ecosystem. Well, who manages that? That's normally an entirely different group, right? And so then the question is, should that be part of a broader discussion of a workforce ecosystem? I mean, it's not exactly the same as outsourcing and all these, but it needs to be part from a strategy perspective and a senior executive perspective, certainly an overall discussion of who is doing the work that creates the value for customers, right? And so we have lumped that into this broader discussion of integration architectures because there you see different examples of how to do this. Even within smartphones, Apple does it differently than Android, for example, right? So though that feels like a very different type of discussion and maybe a strategy discussion of how you manage complementers and how you manage partners, we've rolled it into this broader conversation because we think it is very important at the C-suite level to think about how's the work getting done and where is it getting done and who should be doing it and then that begs this question of, and how should it be managed in a much more coordinated way? No, that's really helpful, Liz. And sorry, Robin, I think you want to add something. Well, I'll, I'll just add what Liz is getting to, and, and we're seeing this play out in, with the clients that we serve, is it kind of gets right to the heart of organization design, organization structure, and all underpinned by the notion that humans have wants, needs, <laughs> beliefs, and the like, and they are essentially all becoming free agents, right? Even your internal permanent employees are starting to develop this mindset of a free agent. And as you look at what Liz just described, the, what's happening in organizations is organizations liked efficiency. They liked order, right? So we had functions and we had clear roles, responsibilities, accountabilities. That's all being blown up right now because you've got people who may be aligned to one group working on projects with another group who are working on with people outside the organization and and so you've lost that clarity or that nice neat order orderly structure that then when companies like in you know the economy the economic environment we're in right now they want to go in and do traditional cost cutting spans layers skills and the like they that is not a clear-cut answer anymore because the structure itself that's designed on paper looks really nothing like the way the work is getting done. I know, really good. And Robin, I'm going to move to technology now on the, on the next question because I think it, it, it links in quite well here. Clearly, technology is a, is a huge part of the, of the workforce ecosystem. But you know, what, what considerations should business leaders and HR professionals be aware of when, when integrating technology into an organization to support their workforce ecosystem. Yeah, so we write a whole section on this, a whole chapter. And first of all, tech technology is a huge topic overall, right? And when we really contemplated this, we broke it down into what we thought were five broad categories that really need to be considered across the spectrum of your workforce ecosystems. And I'll just step through that, David, just to give you a quick you know, snapshot of what those five categories are because they have different purposes. The first one is what we call work tech. And that's the technology that's really driving productivity, automation, collaboration. These are the tools we use to do our work. Think spreadsheets, think diagnostic tools if you're a medical practitioner. And I would put generative AI or chat GPT specifically going to be in that category just at the beginning of that. 
The second one is around workforce tech. And these are the systems that help manage workforces and help workers. So traditionally, this has always started in HR, but they're going in kind of two different directions. They're going more expansive with HR technology. Think Workday and Vindaly have come together. Now that's managing both internal and external workforces. And you have a whole range of technologies that are helping HR functions get their arms around the total workforce beyond the traditional HCM systems. The second part of that is, of course, as Liz described with Cisco or many others that are trying to put a unified way of orchestrating internal and external workforces, they go right to the topic of technology. How are we going to have connect the systems from procurement, from HR, and from other places in the organization to really get a total view of the workforce? The third category is what we call workplace tech. And this was obviously, you know, popularized during the beginning of COVID and the pandemic. Zoom, you think about Microsoft Teams, but every one of the technologies that were emerging before the pandemic have and are going to continue to advance to really unify and integrate physical and virtual work and make teams more productive in the collaboration. The fourth one is is an interesting one, and I see this already starting to become a really key concern of our clients, is credentialization and verification tech. Now, chat GPT, or I should say generative AI, is going to layer on a whole new level of dimension to this, which we're already seeing. But these are the ones that are really helping organizations truly verify who the workers are, what skills they have, what career experiences they have, and then really, you know, be have more assurance around where they can be deployed across the organization and represent the business. So this one is going to be huge, I think, but it was already something that is super important just with the external workforce as well as the internal now overall. And then the last one is where technology is actually the participant in the workforce, and we've talked about that. Um, It could be an augmentation tool, but it also can be any technology that is performing work and maybe um, maybe performs as a digital FTE and needs security and access or an RPA bot. So this has been, you know, all of these convergence of technologies have been coming together. And it's, again, not a simple answer, but we tried in the book to really frame out five key categories, all of which have relevance to the workforce ecosystem. No, no, that's really helpful, actually. And, and, and presumably HR has a role to play in each of those five areas to, to, a, to a greater or lesser degree. Absolutely, for sure. Kind of next, next area. So we looked at technology. We're going to look at employee experience. We're going to start with employee experience, but we're going to think about it. Maybe it needs to be, we need to think of it from a slightly different perspective now. So in essence, is it, is it accurate to say that it's no longer solely about employee experience in, in the sense that we've maybe always thought about employee experience, but it's actually about the overall workforce experience? You know, you know, what are the differences between the two? And I think, Robin, you're going to start that. And Liz, I think you're going to add something on it as well. Yeah, we interviewed 
Kathy Benko, another former partner of Deloitte. She happened to be our chief talent officer in one of her last roles at the firm. She sits on the board of Nike and Workboard and Solar Winds. Um, and I just think she, you know, really, ha- and she lives, of course, in Silicon Valley, but she has her finger on the pulse of this. And she saw what we saw, the exact same thing, and that is. Yes, workforce experience is incredibly important and more so than it ever was. But the tie that binds for organizations is really the culture. And it goes back to, you know, back to the leadership discussion we had earlier about what role leadership has in shaping culture. It is like trust and transparency and, and creating flexibility and a workforce experience where people can grow and thrive. That to us is really becoming the new secret sauce for in for really integrating organizations and really creating the stickiness that you want um, and the stickiness is both you know retention of you know high performing employees you've hired but also ret- um, access and retention uh, or attraction and retention of people who are you know off balance sheet as well and on these different contract models so we're always looking for the right people to do the right work at the right time, but you also need to create this, this culture and foster that uh, to really create you know, this desire for people to continue to want to invest their personal capital, which is their time, which is their time investing in skills, experiences, and growth, which again adds to their, their, their capital as individuals. And so that is such an important aspect of getting it right. And I think, David, you're absolutely right with the question. It's not two separate things, and it's not one or the other. It truly is. You have to get to the heart of what the the experience that they want, what's getting in their way, what's causing frustration, uh, what roadblocks do they keep running into, and they just are tired of them, and really remove those, and then really invest deeper in the type of culture you want to create for the entire set of people who are working for you. And Liz, I think you were going to add something on this one as well. Sure. So, and I think what Robin mentioned is very important about this notion that you have to think about culture in a much broader way. We had a kind of surprising conversation with one CEO, and then it was echoed by some others, where we started to realize that there's a presumption that homogenous culture or a similar culture is good, right? And that even when we're talking about, we say, oh, you know, the culture needs to be not only employees, it needs to be across the workforce ecosystem. And there's this underlying assumption that that means that we should have one smooth, seamless culture across the organization. And so this particular CEO of a company called, uh, it's Corey Covergaro, a company called Planomatic, this company relies heavily on a large ecosystem of contractors. And he said that you know, in the beginning, they were really working on pulling those contractors in. How did they make them feel like they were part of the organization? So they had them come to gatherings. You know, they we laughed about, you know, sending them T-shirts, but it's really including them in the training and including them in the whole thing. And he started to get feedback from some of the contractors who basically said, look, I appreciate everything you're doing, but I really don't want to be a big part of your culture. Like if I wanted to be a real active member of your culture, I would ask to be an employee. I like being a contractor, right? Please send me my assignment 
I will do my assignment. I will send you back the outcome and you will pay me. And we will be, you know, like in this very transactional way, right? And he started to realize that he was trying to force a culture fit that didn't make sense, that there are times when contractors want to be more part of the mainstream culture, but there are other times, and you said it earlier, that this may depend on the context, it may depend on the organization, but there are plenty of contractors who like being contractors, who want to be contractors, right? Who do not want to be treated as employees. And of course, then you get into the whole legal question of what does that mean and what are the implications and how that varies by geography. So I think we just need to be careful because I've now had a number of these conversations where the assumption is that, oh, you have a workforce ecosystem, you need to create a much more comprehensive culture. And that means we need to figure out how to treat everybody the same. And I think that last leap is an incorrect leap, right? And so we just need to think more about what does it mean to have a consistent some maybe values again purpose mission some elements of the culture that are consistent but other elements of the culture that are totally appropriate for the various different members and participants contributors in the workforce ecosystem yeah and yet another area of complexity that, that, that that's added i guess that ability to turn the knobs up or down depending on 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 who you're dealing with, I guess. Uh, well, and back to the leadership conversation we had before, we probably didn't we didn't mention this specifically, but I would say, and this is another major leadership challenge for leaders operating in this organization. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. On the note of HR becoming more strategic partners, because, you know, what both of you have said throughout the last sort of 40 minutes or so is, is definitely pointing towards that. How does this new way of thinking about the workforce enable HR to step more into their strategy creation role rather than the more traditional one that HR has has sat in the strategy implementation role? Sure. Well, so I'll start with this, but also I think Robin sees this every day in talking with her clients and and, um, out in her work. But, you know, we're seeing more and more HR being part of uh, these cross-functional conversations. And again, I'll go back to the example we used with Cisco, right? So where HR has a real seat at the table, but it's part of a broader strategy conversation, right? About who do we need? What do we need? What is the role of technology going to be? What is the role of contingent workforce going to be? And you know, how do HR members and HR leaders have that conversation with their peers from other functions in a much more integrated way. So I think it's consistent with everything we've been saying before. 
And I'll add at Deloitte, we've been running a quarterly survey with Fortune with CEOs. And, you know, what are the top issues, topics that are concerning you as a CEO? And for about three, two and a half, three years running, and even now that we're kind of like beyond the, the, the heart or the height of the pandemic, the number one topic that is at the top of the CEO concern list is talent. It's, and it's all things talent. And it's both in the war for talent that we were just in, as well as, you know, the talent that, you know, the labor market's moderated in some pockets. So it's interesting that it's starting to endure the times. And when I think about the opportunity that creates for HR and HR leaders, the CEOs are really begging for that, that collaboration, that perspective, that insight from a strategic perspective and a strategy formulation standpoint, as opposed to just implementing what others at the leadership table are creating. So I just think it's a real call to action and opportunity. And they're desperate because, again, we are navigating uncharted territory in all things workforce, work and workplace. And that CHRO and CEO and chief strategy officer and everyone at the leadership team is, is you know, struggling through this. And it's really that opportunity for CHROs. Which leads probably quite nicely, I think, to the question that we're asking everyone in this series, Robin. It's the penultimate question today as well. How can HR leaders build a data-driven and digitally literate culture in HR? And maybe you might talk about the importance of that to, to really realise the opportunity that the workforce ecosystem provides. Yeah. Well, we've hit on a lot of it now, and I, I think, you know, maybe it's close to home, but, you know, as a consultant, you know, I, our teams are asked by business leaders to come in and bring outside perspectives, bring data, bring insights, like bring knowledge about the kinds of challenges they're having, but also the kinds of solutions that they could apply. And I just think that, you know, HR has a real imperative now to be those consultants, to show up with that, you know, really be well read about what's happening in the workplace and how it's shifting, how these new technologies, for example, are encroaching very, very quickly and permeating not in a negative way, but in an opportunistic and value-creating way, right? But also bring the data and the insights. If you think about the stakeholders that HR has, it's the people that are working for the organization and it's the leaders who are trying to manage through the organization. And they want simplified answers. They want it simple. They want it quick. They want confidence that what is happening is real. So our clients in HR are really stepping into a very data savvy mode. Their HR teams are being completely upskilled around um, insights, analytics. But what's unique about HR is you have to still have that really strong combination of human oriented capability, you know, capabilities and perspectives and empathy, as well as now the data analytical inquisitive mindset about how people are working and performing in these, you know, large fragmented and systemic organizations. So that it's become such a dominant set of skills that are needed throughout. I would add, and I mentioned it, this notion of experimentation is really important, right? There's no best practices yet. There's no, you know, standard way of doing these things. We are completely shifting into a new mode of 
working and running businesses and organizations and extracting value and making people feel, you know, thrive in their careers. And so the experimentation mindset is incredibly important in HR and to have that agility that it brings. And I would say you can't have experimentation without data, analytics, hypotheses, to really know what you're going after and be able to play out, you know, what's working, what's not, what do we need to tweak? Uh, and as we mentioned before, we just talked about different people. Not You can't have a one-size-fits-all solution. So if different people want different ways of engaging with the organization, you now have to be completely nuanced and um, focused on the different pockets as well. And again, I don't know how you can do that without you know, that combination of being human-centric but also being data and analytically-centric. No, no, I completely agree. And and, and it's interesting, we've recently published some research at Insight 222 looking into, you know, elements of of creating that data-driven culture in HR. Uh, And we saw the really important role of the CHRO and the HRLT in in modelling that approach themselves, you know, kind of setting that benchmark, I guess, for the, the, the rest of HR to, to follow. And we actually also saw the importance of the people analytics team, almost the leader there, but having at least, you know, being responsible effectively for, for, for upskilling the rest of the, the HR professionals, particularly HR business partners, obviously, who are the ones be having the conversations and understanding the ecosystem and making sure that they tweak things perfectly for different different parts of that ecosystem as well. Very interesting. So, so as we come to the end of, of our conversation today, I think it'd be really helpful, uh, Lisa, if you could summarize some of the key points maybe that the HR professionals and leaders listening can can take home and maybe start acting on today. Great. Yeah, so we've we've thought about this and we can I think we can boil it down to three key messages, right? One is that truly the definition and structure of a workforce is changing, right? Whereas it used to be internal permanent employees, now it's internal permanent employees also with external contingent and technology in a much more integrated way. And we would say in an ecosystem structure that has interdependencies and complementarities and kind of is all interconnected. As we've been talking about here, that it isn't just an HR discussion. That is, of course, important for HR. And of course, HR is central to this whole discussion. But that really, this is not just about sourcing and retaining workers, but rather about the strategy and the leadership and management practices changing, technologies enabling and driving this. And what does that mean from an HR perspective in conjunction with all of these other business conversations? And third, and we touched upon it a little bit here, that, of course, there are all kinds of ethics and corporate social responsibility issues that come to the fore, many of which existed before, but workforce ecosystems add on new complexities. In some cases, they help situations. In some cases, they add new risks to situations, right? And But they're very affected by regulations and compliance. Regulations are changing, but often not changing as quickly as practices, And this, of course, is hugely variable by geography, by region, can be local, state, federal, et cetera. So I think those three are the key messages. Any final words from you, Robin, before we wrap up? No, I just think we always go back to the first question is, who is your workforce? And and Liz, I think, just threaded that, you know, the importance of that question, asking it, 
understanding it kind of threads through all of those takeaways. So for me, that's the starting point on on, on this whole topic. Well, Robin Lees, thank you so much for being guests on the Digital HR Leaders podcast and also for, for co-authoring this book, Workforce Ecosystems. I think really thoughtful and I definitely recommend you know, any HR leaders, HR professionals out there, particularly those involved in workforce planning, um, HR business partners should, should definitely make the effort to, to read it, read the book. Can you let listeners know how they can get in touch with, with you, follow you on social media and find out more about the book and your work? Uh, Liz, I'll start with you and let Robin wrap up. Sure. I'm very available on LinkedIn Post a little bit on Twitter, but I would say LinkedIn is the best way to follow me. And if you look at, if you go to MIT Sloan Management Review, this book derived from a project, an ongoing multi-year project that we did there on the future of the workforce. And we have a landing page there from which you can get to all of the reports. There's an infographic, there's an interactive data tool. So I would suggest looking also at SMR. If you go to the future of the workforce page, that's a good launching point. And of course, the book is available worldwide through the MIT Press. If you're outside the US, just go to the MIT Press website and the gray buttons will pop up where you can get it in your region and in the US and all the Amazon and all the various uh, uh, booksellers. So, And uh, we're very interested in feedback and people's comments and thoughts. This is an ongoing conversation. We really look at this as kind of the beginning of a conversation about this topic. So um, you see that I'm active on LinkedIn and I'm very interested in hearing from people and hearing what people have to say. And I will just say thank you again for having us. It's been a pleasure to be here. And, you know, this this work with Deloitte and with SMR has been fabulous so far. And we're looking forward to continuing to have the, the conversation. Thanks, Liz. And, and Robin? Yeah, uh, very similar channels. Uh, I won't repeat what Liz just said about where you can get the book and find all the reports. There's a couple additional ones. For me, I'm very active on LinkedIn as well. Not so much on Twitter, but uh, LinkedIn for sure. You can connect with me through there, through Deloitte Consulting, and as well as most of the publications that we've written with MIT, SMR, Liz, and the, the whole author team have been republished in other ways through Deloitte Insights, which is one of Deloitte's premier um, publications. Uh, you mentioned, David, at the top of the hour, you had Michael Griffiths and Sue Cantrell on. They are prolific uh, publishers of not only this topic, but others. So a search for any of us at Deloitte Consulting in Human Capital is where you can find us. And again, any of the Deloitte channels or at MIT, SMR, MIT Press. Well, Robin Liz, thanks very much. All, all, all left for me to say is take care and, and hope, to, hope to meet you both in person soon. Great. Thanks again. Thanks, David. Take care. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I'd like to extend my thanks again to Elizabeth Altman and Robin Jones for sharing their vision and expertise on workforce ecosystems. If you did enjoy this episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in and we'll soon be back with another episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Take care and stay well.